0: This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 490. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, huh uh, You'll be swinging. Uh-huh. All right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey, everybody. It is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show, only here on Drummer's Resource. And today, I just want to jump right in, get right to it. Um, My guest is someone who I've known for probably about 20 years now. Um, He is Uh, a rather legendary and epic drummer. He's been like Forrest Gump in a lot of incredible places uh, at at, at a lot of uh, pivotal times in music history. His name, of course, is Bobby Morris. Now, you may not be super familiar with this name, but um, once you listen to the interview, you'll be amazed at uh, the different eras that his career has spanned, the different people he's met, hung out with, and the places he's been, the things that he has done. And it is a very worthwhile listen to your time, even if you're not super familiar uh, with Bobby. Um, I'll just begin by saying a couple of very brief items about him um, and how I first met him. Um, Bobby was uh, grew up in, in New York, essentially. He was an immigrant from Poland, He grew up in in New York City and came of age right around the time of um, the the big bands, was influenced by Gene Krupa, who he saw regularly, who he would eventually get to know. Um, And he got very also involved in the evolution of bebop. So this is the late 30s, early 1940s. I should also point out that Bobby is in his early 90s. um, And you'll hear in the interview, he's completely uh, focused Incredible memory, incredible storyteller. I'm just so excited to to bring this. Um, So, Bobby's career has had many phases. He was in New York doing the bebop thing in the early, um, late 40s. And then he got the opportunity to go out to Las Vegas, which was uh, in 1950. He went to Las Vegas. Now, today we think of Vegas as a megalopolis. It was a sleepy desert town at that time. Remember that Vegas had only been created by uh Bugsy Siegel and other members of the mafia um in the 30s and really in the 40s. So it was still the whole concept of Vegas and what it what it was about, which was gambling and hotels and all that kind of stuff, was very new. So <clears throat> learning for those who've been to Las Vegas, which many of you have or you've seen it in the movies or whatnot, it's hard to imagine what it was like. Um, Bobby was there. There were only five hotel casinos that were only two stories high and the whole population of the town was was uh, 30,000 people or something so um, then after elevating to the highest levels of, of performing as a freelancer he became involved with Louis Prima and um, perhaps those of you remember Louis Prima um david lee roth had a big hit with one of his tunes just a gigolo uh brian setzer had a big hit with one of his tunes jump jive and whale um these are sort of standards and louis prima was one of the people that marched between sort of the swing era and the rock era and established himself he had and louis prima also wrote the song sing 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 believe it or not back in 1936 and flash forward he comes to las vegas brings kind of a new act and a new energy with him. Bobby gets involved and that takes off. And Louis premium was very big at this time, um, <clears throat> in the second half of the 1950s. Um, including they, they played, uh, JFK's inauguration, uh, in 1960. Uh, and then Bobby went on to be very involved in the business side of things as a music director, um, uh, at uh, some of the bigger hotels that were popping up in Vegas and worked with people like Elvis and Barbra Streisand, um, all the biggest names. And it's it's incredible uh, what you're going to hear. I met Bobby 20 years ago, I said, around 98, 97, maybe more than 20 years ago now, because my band, Royal Crown Review, was playing a lot of Louis Prima material and material from that era, the 40s, the 50s, um, rhythm and blues rhythm and blues to rock kind of, um, stuff. And, um, I met a drummer, Sam, we opened for Sam Butera, who had actually been Louis Prima's main sax player and all this stuff. And, and uh, I was speaking to his drummer, really great drummer named Bobby Ruggiero. And he was saying, if you want to really learn how to play, it was called the Prima Shuffle, which is a very unique uh, type of a shuffle, which Bobby will talk about in the interview. He said, you got to go check out Bobby Morris. He's in Vegas. So next time you go, look him up. So I went out, hung out with Bobby. He showed me the Prima shuffle and we became really good friends over the years. He's come to gigs of mine. Um, I was fortunate enough to induct him into the sticks and skins hall of fame along, um, this was in 2011 or 12 here in New York city, along with Hal Blaine and Vic Firth and Joe Procaro and a bunch of other legends in the industry. And it was a star-studded night of, of drumming royalty and, um, all kinds of wonderful people down at the cutting room here in New York city. I was lucky enough to give the induction speech for Bobby, uh, which was a, a real honor for me. And we've just become great friends over the years. He's a wonderful human being, so humble, um, but such a great storyteller, and he's he's been to so many amazing places. And part of the reason why we're timing this interview right for right now is that uh, Hudson Music has just released Bobby's autobiography, which is called My Las Vegas with Elvis Sinatra, Streisand, Darren, Prima, and more. And uh, this is a fantastic book. I'm really excited for Hudson Music. Of course, they're known for all their drum instructional videos and DVDs. This is, um, <clears throat> they're getting into autobiographies now. Rob Wallace, who runs the company has done a great job. It's a beautiful hardcover book, gorgeous cover. And, um, the forward is written by Steve Smith, who also is a big Bobby Morris fan. Uh, Freddie Gruber, my teacher and mentor was, uh, close friends with Bobby. They grew up together. You'll hear Freddie mentioned, um, Bobby's also really tight with Roy Haynes and just so many of the great, I mean, everybody from the beboppers to the rockers, he knows them all. So um, anyway, I've told you told you a little bit about what's coming up. And the reason I want to encourage you to get this book is I'm now going to tell you a bunch of stuff that you're not going to hear in the interview because we didn't have time to get into it. Um, but, uh, you know, in addition to all the stuff you're going to hear in this interview, Bobby was one of the early... Uh, double bass players. He played uh, double bass in the 1950s and, um, you know, brought it into the whole rock and roll realm. Uh, so that's fascinating. In the 1960s, uh, Bobby was was a, one of the major session guys at Capitol Records in Los Angeles playing early rock and roll because there were no drummers around or not many that could play rock. So they would fly him in from Vegas where he was playing with Louis Primm and they say, do that stuff on... Uh, recording. So he was an early rock session drummer. He also was uh, an early um, Buddy Rich. Uh, uh, he was Buddy Rich's rehearsal drummer. Buddy winds through this story quite a bit. Um, Bobby knew him from a very early time. And when Buddy put his famous band together in 1964, the the, the new swinging band, the band that would he would have for the rest of his life uh, until he died in, in 87, um, he always had rehearsal drummers in, in these bands who would uh, set up, um, he, Buddy would sit out front and listen. He didn't read music, so he had the drummer read the chart down, and then he would listen. And Bobby was the very first rehearsal drummer in the Buddy Rich band. Bobby also was an early clinician and toured all of the world doing drum clinics at a time when that was almost, nobody was doing that. And He got involved in the Far East with a Filipino rock band called the Sunspots. And that's a whole nother story. He was out in the, in the Far East making records and they were like the Beatles of the Philippines. He was playing to enormous crowds out there playing rock and roll. Um, so, you know, so many things. Oh, by the way, I should also mention that he hung out with, like, some of the biggest names in the mob. Because, of course, in Vegas, you know, when it first started, the mob really had their hands on everything for a long time. So names like Sam Giancana play into this, into this book. It's an amazing life, an amazing story. And um, that's just some of the stuff you're only going to get if you get the book. So without further ado, I want to introduce and bring my dear, dear friend, Bobby Morris. I'm so happy to have him on the Daniel Glass Show. And here is our interview. I'm absolutely thrilled, honored, delighted, and uh, in every other way, excited to have with me today on the Daniel Glass Show, the one and only Bobby Morris. Bobby, welcome to the Daniel Glass Show.
1: Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you for having me. It's, it's
0: just an honor to have you here. We've known each other for a long time, and I've, I've known your story for a long time, and I'm extremely excited that, uh, that this book has been released thanks to Rob Wallace and Hudson Music and that the world is going to get a chance to really uh, get your story detailed. Um, and it's, it's been a long time coming with the book, hasn't it?
1: Thank you very much. And that, speaking about Rob Wallace... I I would like to personally thank him and his staff at Hudson Music, and um, especially uh, Joe uh, Bergamini and and some of the other uh, members that have been instrumental in helping me put this book together. Yeah, and and Rob has been just absolutely wonderful to work with. Great, great. It's a joy
0: Yeah. Well, good. Well, let's let's you know begin sort of with with your story um it is it is an incredible story it 's in my opinion a really amazing american story and uh it it traverses so many areas um, you you originally are an immigrant from poland correct yes i was
1: uh, I was born in poland uh, june uh, thirtieth nineteen twenty seven I came over to this country uh, it was uh June twenty seventh. I'm sorry. I was born in nineteen twenty seven, but I came over June twenty seventh, nineteen
0: thirty seven. Okay, so you're about ten
1: immigrants on the uh, ship called the Polsuski. It's a Polish uh, liner, Polish uh, beautiful ship, and. Uh,
0: What what brought your uh, your family? Was it, uh, uh, you know, I know Hitler was in power at that time. Was it did it have to do with that, that whole thing, the rise of Nazism
1: to do with that, Daniel? But uh, basically, um, my father was uh, an American citizen and he fought in the First World War with the uh, on on the American side. And uh, and uh, he was he went back to Poland And that's where he met my mother and all that. But the American government uh, gave him an ultimatum. Uh, Every two years, his visa his uh, visa was extended, and he was allowed to. But it came. uh, The situation arose in in Poland where it became very rough, as you know, politically with Hitler. And the American government wanted all Americans out of of Poland. I was an American citizen in Poland. I was actually uh, born on, uh, on his uh, citizenship. Yeah. And, um, anyhow, uh, well, the, uh, the government, the Polish government, told him that uh, if he doesn't leave, they would have to have no alternative but to take his citizenship papers away. Uh-huh. So at that point... We left and we left my mother and my younger brother in Poland. Unfortunately, we weren't able to take them with us because the Polish government didn't allow all of us to go at once. But about a year or so later, fortunately, we did uh, have them come over and they arrived in uh, the United States. On the way back, the Bosyski was. sunk by German U-boats. Wow. That was the last trip. And uh, we were very, very fortunate that uh, my mother was saved and my younger brother,
0: Arthur. Yeah. So many incredible stories from that time period, yeah. for sure. So you, you land in New York and yeah. you're in New York. It's the height of the swing era now. All the big bands are happening. Obviously, what drew you to music uh, you know, at the age of 10, arriving in America for the first time.
1: Well, actually, Daniel, what actually drew me to music was, I don't know if this was the main reason, but uh, years ago in Poland, my grandfather was um, in a military band, and we went to see him, and here he is walking with a military band playing military drums, and I was... I was really enchanted with the sound of drumming. So, uh, what actually happened was when I arrived in the United States, I couldn't speak English. I spoke other languages, but English was not one of them. So, when we arrived, um, I happened to have heard the Benny Goodman band on a a radio. And... uh, Featuring Gene Krupa, and uh, I, I, I got really infatuated with with that music, you know, with the big band music. Yeah. The, um, I, uh, they, I saw in the newspapers one afternoon that uh, Benny Goodman was going to be appearing at the Paramount Theater in New York, and at, at that time the the charge was twenty five cents to see the the orchestra and a movie and the whole shebang yeah I, uh, I I I went out to the paramount theater I took the uh, train it was a nickel uh, subway train and I got to the paramount and and uh, Benny Goodman band came on and all of a sudden from out of the the um, the pit you know yeah the pit the, the drum riser came up with gene Krupa. and I, I was I was absolutely thrilled then when they went into their signature uh tune of sing 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 i that was it that was my um I knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life. It was absolutely thrilling so i I walked down Broadway after the show and I saw this um at Willis' music store, yeah, I saw, I heard a drummer playing, and he played really well. And, uh, of course, everybody played well to me in those days. It was, I just loved the drums. And I, I got to know him and I asked him who his teacher was or who he could recommend. And he says he was studying with Henry Adler. Wow. At the Whitby Hotel at 43rd and uh, 8th Avenue. So I went to see Henry Adler, and uh, I told him that, uh, you know, I was 11 years old now, and I was speaking English, you know, and uh, I, I told Mr. Adler I, I would love to uh, have him be my teacher, and i like to study with him. So he said, no problem, and the lessons would be $3 a lesson. So, of course, uh, that was a lot of money for me at the time. So I shined an awful lot of shoes every day, every week, to save up $3 so I could take the lesson. Wow. And, uh, and
0: just, just to interrupt for one sec, for those who are listening, uh, Henry Adler was one of the most uh, decorated drum teachers and drummers in New York at that time. Of course, he uh, worked with Buddy Rich, writing yes. Buddy Rich's famous Rudiments book. And lots of people study with him, including my teacher and mentor and your friend, Freddie Gruber, who was a good friend. I know Freddie and was involved with Henry as well at at points along the way. Um I'm
1: I'm glad you brought up Freddie Gruber. Yes. Yeah. Because here's uh this is very interesting. So I was studying with Henry Adler, and I was into about three or four months, maybe five months, and uh Henry said, um, Bobby, I want you to listen to this student. that has been with me over a year or so, you know. And I'm playing paradiddles like right, left, right, right, left, right, left. You know, right. Slow all the rudiments, very slow, and and uh, so he he brings in this kid. His name is Freddie Gruber. He's a little older than me, maybe a year older. And he is playing paradiddle do 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 do. do, do. Like, I, I said, oh, my God, I was completely flabbergasted hmm. see how Freddie and I have known each other for all these years, and uh, Freddie and I started working out together. Wow. And we got to be very good friends, and so we started working out together, and I made up my mind that I was going to work, if I had to work six or eight hours a day on a drum pad, I was going to catch up to him Like <laughs> the rudiments. And Fantastic, I think I did. Oh and, yeah. Uh, so uh, Freddie and I remained friends, and whenever I came to Vegas, we hung out together. And yeah, he's just a funny, wonderful, um, intelligence character, uh, character. <laughs> a real character. Yes, and he's uh, he had a lot of good students, and yeah, that was a very a very well filled-off teacher. Yes, of course, as you know, with students like Steve Smith and Dave Weckel and so on and so
0: forth. Sure. So to, to get back to New York, because this, so you're you're already just out of sheer interest and passion and love of this, already mingling with some pretty heavy heavy names, some legendary names, and um, so as we get into the 1940s. Uh, you're, you're, I assume, at some point graduated to the drum setting. you start playing around in New York. And, of course, bebop is a big influence. And I remember you telling me before, uh, you know, sort of how bebop dawned on the scene and how you got into that. Maybe you could share a little more about that, because that's also a fascinating time when right. sort of the swing period, all of a sudden this upstart new form of music shows up from Harlem and, and it, it everybody, it's very controversial, right?
1: Yeah. Well, Daniel, it's it just... this... A lot of things happened before I actually got into the 52nd Street and bebop. Uh, you know, first of all, I I kept studying with Henry Adler, and uh, it was a couple of years later when I I decided to join. Uh, I was told to join the uh, musicians' union if if I wanted to get a job working as a drummer. So I um, I went over to the musicians' union and. Fifty Second Street, as you know, on Eighth Avenue, I believe, and uh, local eight oh two, and I I uh, tried out. Uh, At that time, you had to pay fifty dollars to to get your card, but you had to pass a test. But uh, unfortunately, the the um, the fella that was actually um, uh, checking me out, you know, and uh, you know to see if I'm capable of getting my card, was a drummer. So he put me through every kind of rudiment possible, you know. I was just a kid, you know. And uh, so fortunately for me, studying with Henry Adler, I knew all the rudiments. I mean, ridiculous, triple, (laughs) radical, like uh, climate diddles, you know, all kinds of things. So to make a long story short, I passed the test. And um, I joined the union and I'm I'm now thirteen or fourteen years old I guess. And um somebody came over to me and and offered me a job, you know, at in the Casco Mountains. Huh. So I he said the job pays fifteen dollars a week and with room and board. But I, I um uh, I didn't have a set of drums because I, I was I was a very good drum pad player, uh-huh. but didn't I never touched a set of drums. So I asked a friend of mine, Sonny Man. I, I think he was with the Freddie Slack Orchestra, and he was a neighbor of mine. Uh, I said, "Could you show me how to play a hi hat beat? Because I've got this job, and you know." Anyhow, he showed me how to do hi hat beats and get around the drums and things like that. And actually, for the first time i I hit i touched drums he mm. hit a drum, and um my father was kind enough to lay out a hundred and fifty dollars. I got this job for ten weeks, paid fifteen dollars a week so uh it was at the casco mountains, so he he laid out a hundred and fifty dollars and I got the um the drum set and um went up to the um casco mountains and and started working, you know, with this, uh, band backing shows. I was very fortunate too, that, uh, with Henry Adler, I, he taught me how to read very well. So I was able to read. I just had to, to put it all together, you know, when it came to sh- shows. Yeah. So I started learning and one thing led to another. And, and, uh, that was my first year. I saved a hundred and fifty dollars. Came back, gave it to my father. You know, I didn't. I didn't need any money there because all I needed was a tube of toothpaste. Right. And um, so I came back and uh, and um, kept uh, kept studying and listening to the music. And uh, of course, I started hanging out on Fifty Second Street and. And uh, I was I got a job playing actually on fifty second street.
0: So for those let me just explain a little more. Fifty second street, which is also known as the street, uh yeah. was sort of the uh ground zero uh in the forties. I would say the forties and fifties, well maybe even going back to the thirties, but really the forties and fifties of all the all the main jazz clubs in midtown Manhattan and the Onyx, the three deuces. Uh, a lot of the very famous clubs were there and that's, you know, where a lot of the action was in New York for jazz at that time. And I know there were, there were swing stars, uh, but there were also these, these upstart beboppers, you know, coming down from Harlem. Uh, so, so you got, you started playing. I mean, obviously you were, you had the talent to do it and, uh, you started getting some work. Well, what, what
1: happened was, uh, I was hanging out, you know, Charlie's Tavern, and I was underage, but Charlie, uh, Charlie's Tavern, took a liking to me, and uh, so I did get a job on 52nd Street. But I, prior to that, I had worked uh, a couple of more seasons in the uh, Catskill Mountains, hmm. you know, but that's that's another story. Yeah. But I got the job on 52nd Street with a trio, Chuck Wayne. I don't know if you remember that guitar player Chuck Wayne and mm-hmm. Red Rodney.
0: Sure, Red Rodney, yeah, trumpet player, and uh, and uh,
1: Gene Donovi, piano. So we're we're playing every night, and I, I I couldn't I couldn't believe it that I was having so much joy, and I was mm-hmm. loving it so much. So one night, um, and Kay Winding used to come in and sit in with us, trombone player, yeah player with the uh, Stan Kenton band. Yeah. So one night we hear about this this band coming down from Harlem and uh, this new music called Bebop. And we were all very excited to hear this band that's going to be opening up. at the, I believe the Deuces, the The band consisted of Charlie Parker on alto, dizzy Gillespie on trumpet, J.J. Johnson on trombone, Bud Powell on piano, uh, Curly Russell on bass, and Max Roach on drums.
0: It doesn't get so, any heavier than that for that time period. So Tay Winding
1: and us, we all went down to uh, to hear this enormous, unbelievable like music that just is like we couldn't believe what we heard. So we went down and, and we're all sitting around and J.J. J. Johnson opens up with a eight bar, eight bar trombone thing, and trombone, you know, at the time, trombone player would be like Jack Tegon. Everything was very simple, very in right on the on the nose of the beat, you know. J.J. J. Johnson opened up with an eight bar thing. And uh, Max Roach, you know, in the rhythm section when I did a sub-tempo thing. So uh, Kay Winding started walking out the door. I said, where are you going? I said, well, Kay, I got to tell you. Uh, he says, uh, I'm going to take my trombone. Kay Winding said, I'm going to take my trombone, put it in the middle of the street, on 52nd Street, and let a cab." cab run over it
0: <laughs> Right. i think so, a lot of guys have that uh reaction or at least the feeling and, of that
1: of course later on you know J and k right. started fighting with uh, and he he was quite a trouble okay
0: yeah so k caught up and then he ended up making a record with jj j. johnson which was called k yeah. and j uh
1: yeah.
0: where they where they were both playing some serious serious pop yeah, yeah. so obviously that um greatly impacted you and then you know uh how did you pick that stuff up since it was so new there was such a whole different series of independents involved with it you know much more so than the than the dance music of the swing era
1: i i i I picked up on it i met uh jim Chapin, ah and uh he was writing this book you know the uh, independent drumming and all that yeah and I became a student of his and started studying with him and learning a lot of the independence thing between hands and feet and all that. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. Oh, it's
0: it's a classic, and that's that's Jim Chapin's what, biggest contribution, you know, and, in that sense of, of actually documenting a lot of right. the bebop independence because I think a lot of people heard it and just had no idea what was going on. It was so complex compared to what had been before
1: it's a whole new form of playing a whole yeah. new uh, uh concept and it's i loved it and it it gave me the facility on, of independence to to play like that kind of music it really helped me uh, mo- it was into modern jazz you know sure everything was getting into the modern jazz the bebop era uh music was really like progressing yeah, from the big band things now to to jazz to bebop, and all of that, and I I kind of fell into it and and I loved it very much. I, I I loved listening to it. I loved playing, and I would I would try to do that with wherever I could. And fortunately, I was making I was actually making money playing it. 52nd street. Paid fifty second street paid week, but that was a lot of money to me and to actually get paid for playing
0: yeah now i uh, I remember you telling me some interesting stories around this this point about what your schooling was like, and you know uh that you maybe you were a little bit half in half out of school, and then you you because you were just playing so much and then you end up at Juilliard and I'm dying to hear how this no. fits into the story. Maybe I have it wrong. It wasn't Juilliard. I,
1: I went to a, a high school for music, a municipal high school for music in, in um, Manhattan. Mm. And then um, I I went there and I studied uh, all the percussion instruments. And I, I got to play timpani and vibes in the symphony orchestra. And they asked me to... Um, I had to play another instrument in order to pass my grade, so I picked up bass fiddle.
0: Hmm.
1: At the end of uh, my schooling, at uh, high school schooling, I, uh, I I went to Manhattan School of Music.
0: Ah, Manhattan School. Okay, equally as uh, prestigious as Juilliard. Very good school.
1: Yeah, I wasn't able to graduate, but uh, but fortunately, I was starting to pick up like some very good. Uh, paying jobs with uh, with big bands, you know. While I was actually uh, doubling on Fifty Second Street, so I I got a job with the um, I don't know if you remember Swing and Sway with Sammy Kay. Sure. Tony Longo, a drummer, a friend who was also a neighbor, uh, called me up one time and he said, uh, "I'm going to be leaving." And they're auditioning drummers. And uh, would you like to come and audition? I said, Oh, of course. He said, But I'll tell you, I didn't have, I really didn't have a suit, or he lent me a suit. And he said, Come in for a couple of nights and, and sit on the bandstand and see what I do and try to emulate exactly what I'm playing. Yeah. And I think you'll probably wind up getting a job. So I I did that, and then at addition time there were about twenty drummers, and everybody was trying to out uh, out, out drum each other, you yeah. know, uh, with the, uh, showing their technique, our technique to each other. And uh, and I when I went up, you know, I just played like Tony recommended I do, very simply. <laughs> very simple time kept to the time and like you know and uh, to make a long story short, I got the job and um, and it paid uh, I believe it was an enormous amount of money I think it was two hundred or two hundred and fifty dollars so I was working there and put a beautiful tuxedos blue tuxedos and then at the end of that I think we we'd, we'd uh, close about eight thirty or eight o'clock uh, the job would end. It was, you know, kind of more of an early evening. thing mm-hmm. Luke, and we would, I would uh, change and immediately, rush over to my gig on Fifty Second Street. So it, I had the best of both worlds. And here I'm making all this money with a big band, and I'm making fifty dollars a week playing jazz that I loved. So that uh, that was kind of um, a, a very very, very good time in in my life. That's and, fantastic, uh, it, it, and I
0: I don't know how you managed to, because you were probably working till two in the morning every night at the at, at the club. So then trying to get to school it, it
1: nine o'clock, and it went to three o'clock. Wow, forty five minutes, fifteen minutes off, and we'd finish at three, and uh, I had a little apartment, a little uh, room on Eighth uh, Avenue. Eight dollars a week, <laughs> and uh eating it, horn and hearted, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, you're very acquainted with New York, so you know yeah. what I'm talking
0: about. Yeah. Now, was this uh so you you had moved out from your your parents' house at this point while you were still in high school?
1: Yes, I I moved out and I lived in in New York. uh And uh, where was, where were
0: your folks living? In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. Okay, so you went to Manhattan. Coney Island. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a long. That's a long commute to get to uh, Manhattan. So I understand why.
1: I was going to high school and Metropolitan School of Music in uh, in Manhattan, and uh, I got a, a little room for eight dollars. And uh, fortunately, I I was always getting some jobs down at Fifty Second Street. I was fortunate enough to get um, with Coleman Hawkins, and, and Ben Webster, and uh, Errol Garner. A lot of like uh, name, you know, uh, uh, not bebop players, but wonderful jazz players. Yeah. And uh, I, I saved my money all the time, and uh, just kept putting money away because I knew that the rainy day was going to come someday, and and I didn't want to. I needed that eight dollars to pay for my room.
0: Yeah, sure. Wow. So, I mean, you, Coleman Hawkins, Ben Webster, you know, the, these are Earl Errol Garner. These are like yeah. epic, legendary figures in jazz. It's it's unbelievable. You must have uh, must have been quite a, an education for you at that time.
1: It, was, it was education. And one of my drum heroes at the time, and I tried to emulate his playing, was Sid Catlett. Yeah. And uh, he was wonderful. And he was playing on the street with different people. So... When I was listening, I I I listened to Sid a lot, and, and I played. I try to play like him. There's um, there's times when you have to conform to whatever and whoever you're with. Sure. So uh, it's it was a, a marvelous experience for me, and I I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed it, and what a wonderful education it was. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I wanna I wanna keep moving forward because we have so much ground to cover here in a limited amount of time. Um sure. but people can get all of this. The book has gorgeous photographs of you at every step of the way. It's really beautifully written, uh, and there's much more detail obviously to all these different periods of, of your life. And obviously the next big period was your move to Las Vegas, which seems like a total, you know, right, you know, hard right turn. Uh, for the guy that's playing jazz in New York City. So how did the Vegas thing uh, come about? And what what took you out there?
1: Well, uh, I was with a band in uh, Detroit. It was about 10 Below Zero. The band's name was Charlie Fisk. And it was... uh, I'm sitting with the um, manager of the band, the saxophone player, George Soros. And as we're sitting, having coffee, I'm talking to him and say, there must be some place on Earth that's warmer than this, because this is hell to travel and do one-nighters in this horrible
0: weather. So you were also touring at this point, in addition to doing this, this stuff on 52nd Street, etc.
1: I was touring with many bands.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: so we... we uh, he said, yeah, there's a little place out west called Las Vegas. So... Uh, I, I put it in the back of my mind. I said, well, I I kept thinking of Las Vegas, you know, but it was a little town, he said, and it's the desert, whatever. So nothing, nothing ever had to have gambling there and dice and all that. Nothing ever happened for, for quite a while, maybe about a year and I'm touring and still with different bands and, and, and coming into New York and working a little bit at 52nd Street. And um, I'm sitting at Charlie's Tavern. And a band leader comes in by the name of Garland Van. And he said, uh, I'm looking for a drummer to go to Las Vegas. I said, oh, my God, my ears went Las Vegas, you know, because so I heard that, that was the weather was wonderful there. So anyhow, I said, I'll take it. I didn't care about the money. It didn't matter, you know, uh, what it paid. But actually, it paid $87. That was the scale of the place that he was going to.
0: This is a week, a week right?
1: $87 a week at yeah. the last frontier. So we uh, we came out to Las Vegas. I took the job. And uh, the first act, of, well, it's it's a long story, Matt. The first act was Liberace. And, Liberace liked my playing, and he said, uh, I'm getting a television show in Los Angeles, and I I would like you to join me, Bobby. He said, well, well, how much does it pay, Lee? He says, well, it pays $43. I said, well, I can't leave an $87 job for $43. So he said, but it'll get better, Bobby. It'll get
0: better.
1: (laughs) Well, That show went network, and... He became a big star because at that time he was, I think he was just making a thousand dollars a week as the star of the show. Right. And on one network, he, uh, and the uh, Riviera Hotel opened up, and he got the, uh, he was the first star to open it at 50,000, the unheard of figure of 50,000 a week.
0: Wow. Well, so, there were, there...
1: to make a long story short, uh, I was invited. I was invited up to uh, his opening, and at the end of the show, uh, he came over to me, or I came over to him, and I said, congratulations, Lee, I'm really proud of you. He said, you should have come with me, Bobby, I told you to get better. <laughs> right. Said, yeah.
0: Well, let, let me just step back real that, quick, because me, I want you to describe. That was uh, a night
1: nice- Fifty by the way, nineteen
0: fifty. So you got you came out to Vegas in fifty. Can you just describe because people today think of Vegas as it is today, which is this enormous uh, megalopolis with you know dozens, hundreds of casinos of all sizes and giant gleaming towers. What was Vegas like when you got there in terms of the size and the number of casinos?
1: Las Vegas then was uh, the total population was between twenty four thousand and thirty thousand people and that was including Las Vegas, North Las Vegas, Henderson and Boulder City. Yeah. And uh there were five hotels two stories high. There was the Frontier, which we were working in. There was the uh, Desert Inn, the Flamingo, the Thunderbird, and uh let me see El and the El Rancho. El Rancho, yeah.
0: That's it. Five hotels Two stories right. high, so were, those are your casinos.
1: There's five hundred drummers, and I was one of them. And we only came out for eighteen weeks, but I, I loved it. And uh, at the end of the... oh, I got to tell you a little story. It, yeah. Uh, as we're playing in in the uh, frontier, and we're playing for different acts. We opened up with Liberace, like I said, and then this uh, this uh, Ballet Theater came in, and so we played for the Ballet Theater, and then Harry Richmond, many acts, uh, Sophie Tucker, that era. But in the lounge, in the lounge, one week came a group by the name of Gene Krupa. Okay. (laughs) I'm saying by the name of Gene Krupa, ridiculous for me to say. But uh, Gene Krupa came in, and he was working in the lounge with his five-piece group, So at the end of our show, I would always come by and pass by, and I got to know him quite well, and he started inviting me to um, sit in. So every time I would come by, he'd invite me to sit in, and I I would, and I enjoyed it. But uh, one night I said, look, Gene, these people aren't paying to hear me play. They're paying to hear you play. So it's kind of embarrassing, you know, but he liked to hang out, and just sit back and drink and and just talk to people and all that. Right. He's a wonderful, wonderful person, and uh, we became really good friends. That's
0: great. So just uh, what I want to talk about next, which is a really fascinating aspect to your story, is, yes. is the concept of the relief band of which you were a member. Because you had said it, earlier there was only five hotels, there was only five house drummers. No, uh, right, right. But, Tell me what the relief band was and, and how you got involved with that and what that job was all about.
1: Very good. Thank you for asking that question. Okay, so now the Riviera opened and uh, other hotels started being built. So the the house band paid $83, I mean $87 a week. The relief band paid 200 a week. But you had to play a different show every night.
0: So what did the relief band do, Bobby?
1: Okay. When the house band drummer, when the house band would have off, the relief band came in on their day off and played the show. And they were were, uh, expected to play it as good or better. And so because of that, the musicians in the relief band were kind of the upper echelon players in Las Vegas.
0: So they they literally, every night, their job was to to play the night off of all these different guys in in the hotel. That's that's really cool. So every night, you got to play a different show.
1: Exactly. And uh, Daniel, I've got to tell you, this was absolutely a delight for me, because I got to play a different show, and I was getting paid very well. That was very good money in those days. And... uh, so I, I played for every star at that time. They weren't bringing in drummers; they only brought piano accompanists then. So, uh, so however, who were some was, of the
0: who were some of the folks that you that you got to work with in the relief band it, setting?
1: My God, Judy Garland, uh, 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 Danny Kay. Uh, 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 let me. I I got a list of. Um, Lena Horn.
0: Uh, the, the, biggest, the biggest names of that time period. The,
1: the, the biggest names of, 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 of that day. Yeah. Uh, there, there was one act, though, that I didn't play for. And that act was Betty Hutton. Mm. That was the act in two years that brought in their own drummer. And guess who the drummer was? Remo Belly.
0: Remo Belly. <laughs> founder, of course, of of Remo drumheads, exactly. Who who uh, and I interviewed Remo quite a few years ago up at the yeah. factory, and he told me about that uh, that whole time. That was in his touring days, and then he decided he was going to get uh, more on the industry side of things and and settled yeah. in and basically took over the whole market because he was the guy that that well, uh, got the plastic head going, you know, in in the fifties.
1: Understand Remo and Roy Hart. We're partners, yes. at the Hollywood Drum Shop.
0: Yeah, Drum City. And, it was called Drum City, drum City whatever. Yeah. And uh, a gentleman
1: came in and had this this new idea of drum heads, you know, and uh, his plastic head, you know. And um, so they they decided to. Uh, one of them said, "Listen, if if you want the drum shop, you could have it, and I'll take the the head." Remo decided to take the head, and Roy Hart decided to stay with the Hollywood Drum Shop. Yes, it's from there on it's uh, it's history. What happened? Yes, and indeed. Rick and I have been very good friends since, and we often talk about it. And did unfortunately till his passing. Yes, and he was a wonderful person and very innovative,
0: very and a very sharp and, businessman. And very nobody, sharp.
1: <laughs> nobody. Nobody remembers how good a drummer he was. Right. I, I heard him with Betty Hutton.
0: Yeah. He yeah. did a
1: wonderful job.
0: Yeah. Well, it's kind of like uh, uh, Roy Burns. You know, same thing. Roy was an amazing drummer. Of course, he's you no. Know, he had a longer drumming career than Remo did, but then he, he started uh, Aquarian Heads. So a bit of the same career path. And his last was, many years, he was known for the Aquarians.
1: Very interesting thing happened to me. Uh, one time is I'm, I'm playing for this uh, this uh, cowboy actor, Hollywood cowboy, kind of a B actor, and uh, he came in and did a, a soft shoe you know, with three girls, and it was at the frontier. And he, uh, I invited him for for breakfast. There was forty nights on breakfast at the Silver Clipper. Yeah, so we we would go out every night and. He'd buy me breakfast, I'd buy him breakfast, and we got to be really good buddies, and his name was Ronnie, and you might remember him as the governor of California and the president of the United States. Wow. Ronald Ronald Reagan.
0: Unbelievable. So you were (laughs) hanging out with Ronald Reagan before he was Ronald Reagan.
1: He was my breakfast buddy, but he wasn't... Ronald Reagan, and he was he was Ronald Reagan, but not the Ronald Reagan.
0: Right, right. Well, it's we're going to get into some more presidents as we move forward here, and I'm going to keep pushing sure. forward because I want to yeah. get to the next chapter of your Vegas experience, which is of course uh, connecting with Louis Prima and uh, uh, you know being on the cutting edge, essentially of of a new style of music called you know rock and roll, rhythm and blues, rock and roll. Uh, So tell us a little about that, because uh, I'll talk a little bit. I uh, talked about Louis Prima a little bit in my intro to get people up to speed. But how did you get connected? um,
1: uh, I was. um, So I was doing the uh, house band things for a couple of years, and then I decided to form a little jazz group. And I had a little jazz group at the Sahara Hotel. Alternating with with lounge bands. And um, one one of the shows that came in, one of the launch groups that came in, it was Louis Prima and Keely Smith. But they they didn't have Sam Butera or Little Red or Billy McCumber or any any of the uh, players that they wound up with. They they brought in a band that was cut down from the big band, and the guys were reading like charts. And it it was it was good, but but it really had no. Rhythm impact. Yeah. And I'm alternating with them every night. And uh, and then he, he uh, they left. He came back. And when he came back, he brought Sambiutera with him from New Orleans on uh, on saxophone, Little Red, Jimmy Blunt on trombone, Billy McCumber on piano, Dick Johnson on drums, and Amado Rodriguez on bass. Mm-hmm. So I'm still there. And I'm playing with Jack Prince, was called Jack Prince, and the operas with the Bobby Morris uh, quartet. Yeah. In the quartet was uh, Rudy Egan on piano, Didi Lucita on bass, myself and uh, Jimmy Cook on tenor. Very good players, and we were we were like kind of the jazz group in town. We were cooking, you know. Yeah. Now uh, Louis Prima came in. This time he had Sam Tera. And uh, Keeley, it was decisively better. It was it was wonderful. But he, I started running sessions at the Black Magic. And at the sessions, I had everybody from all the big bands would come in and sit in, Sarah Vaughan, Gerald, Stan Kenton's band would be coming into town, all the players, Woody Herman's band, Stan Getz, Al Cohn, Zoot Sims, Serge Chaloff, Frank Rossellino, uh, Kati Condoli. Pete Condoli, uh, people like that would always sit in with us. Yeah. Well, well, Sammy Terry came down once and sat in, and he kept listening to me, you know, with my trio. And he he said, uh, "Bobby, uh, uh, Louis Prima would like to talk to you." I said, "About what?" He said, well, he he'd like to possibly join the group. I said, "Well, Sam, frankly, I'm I got my own thing going. I'm." Happy! I got the jazz going to Black Magic. He said, "Well, at least go over and talk to him." So I did, and he uh, he was very hypnotic, Daniel. And and he said, "Bobby, I I want you to come and join us on thrones. We're going to be doing the uh, the uh, the uh, the Frank Sinatra special, the Colgate Comedy Hour, Dinah sure, you know, and I'm, and I'm about to sign with." Um, Capitol Records and I I need you to play drums. We need we need to make a change with the fella that we had. So anyhow he kind of hypnotized me and he said, What well, are you making now? I was I think I was making two hundred and fifty dollars a week as the leader and he said, Well I'll, I'll give you three hundred and fifty dollars a week or four hundred, whatever it was. So that was like a tremendous race for me yeah so i decided to to join the band and and uh and uh ma rodriguez and uh, Billy McCumber, i asked them to to uh, work out with me and i had an idea for and i know the shuffle rhythm was around but i it wasn't done on a commercial basis like uh what I had in mind with the that at sixteenth and Digging in with the right hand and accenting two and four and all that. Yeah. And so we did it for Louis, and Louis totally flipped out. And uh, I had Billy dinga, dinga, on the piano, I had uh, Amado digging in on two and four, and uh, uh, Louis completely flipped out, and uh, and he loved it. So you know we did that. Uh, just a jiggle though, I ain't got no body on that kind of tune before we recorded with Capital. But he liked that field so much that he decided he wanted me to play it on all the tempos, you know. So it started that's how it started and then I I, I got I wound up where I started playing it at some ridiculous tempos and uh, and I had to come in about an about an hour before the engagement to practice. Wow. So I get my hands in shape. Yeah. Well, so we're, we we signed with Capitol. We did the Wildest uh, album, you know, and then call it Wildest, Wild Show, Lake Tahoe, and many recordings. And uh, and uh, Boyle Gilmore liked my intensity and used me on a lot of rock dates type of thing. Anyhow, as we're playing at the Sahara Lounge, uh, Harry, uh, Buddy Rich was with the Harry James Band.
0: Right, in at, the 50s, yeah.
1: And he uh, came in, he would come in and see us. And I I never went over to say hello. And because I, I heard, you know, like young drummers would come over and they'd say, that's nice, kid. You know, they say I'm a drummer. Whatever. Anyhow, uh um, as I'm eating at the Silver Slipper one night, he's sitting with uh Cicchini, drummer with Freddie Bell, uh-huh. one drummer. And so he grabbed my arm and he said, what do you have to do when a downbeat pull before you say hello? I, but he used uh, words that I cannot... Uh,
0: <laughs> right, that are not repeatable. I, so basically, I, Buddy Rich... You were kind of intimidated to go up to him and well, he finally walked I, up to you and said, What do I gotta do? Win a downbeat poll in order that, to get you to say hello.
1: So I, I told Buddy, I said, Well, Buddy, I, I heard drummers would come over to you and you would and they would say, I'm a drummer and you would say, That's nice, kid, you know, like screw off whatever, you know. And anyhow, uh, he says, No, I've been coming in because uh I to hear you because I think you're an effing animal, you know, I can't say the yeah. word. Yeah, But But, uh, so, to make a long story short, Joe, uh, Buddy and I became really good friends, and he invited me over to his house a lot, and, and then uh, Maria, his wife, and Kathy, his daughter, and all that, and we played jacks, and he always beat us because he's so flexible, you know, and uh, so he'd always pick up more jacks. Uh-huh. But, But I noticed there was a whole bunch of uh, drums in the backyard. He was with... um, uh, He was with... um, Rogers. Uh uh, Rogers. And I said, I said, my God, what are you doing with all those drums? He says, well, Bobby, they keep... Rogers company keeps sending me drums. (laughs) Take whatever you want. You know, he said, well, I said, I can't... I can't use Rogers because I'm with Slingling. You know, I was advertising for Slingling at the time. Yeah. But but I did take a couple of Dynasonic snare drums.
0: Great. Lying around
1: baking in the sun,
0: you know. Yeah.
1: And and I still have those.
0: Wonderful. Well, I just want to, uh, I mean, those are such great stories. So you interacted with Krupa, you interacted with Buddy Rich, and, of course, all these other amazing entertainers being part of all of this. I want to just touch on a couple more things with Prima um, very quickly uh, because – I don't think people quite understand, you know, today Louis Prima isn't all that, I mean, known on on certain scenes. But at that time, rock and roll was just starting to happen. And Prima's very high energy style, which was really backed by that shuffle that you brought to the table, which was a very fast, very high energy intensity shuffle. You were on Ed Sullivan. You, um... You know, and uh, t- tell us just a little bit. You you actually played for John Kennedy's uh, inauguration, right? Presidential inauguration. Kennedy would come see you, right? Hey, good.
1: I'd like to just mention a little bit about uh, what you said about the Ed Sullivan. Yeah. We we went on the Ed Sullivan shows, and Ed Sullivan became a big fan. And uh, all of a sudden, we're we- every other week or so, we're on the Ed Sullivan shows. Uh, one night... Uh, Ed Sullivan would introduce us as, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to meet the group that's putting the cab drivers back to work in New York City, and uh, and he would come down and uh, join join us. You know, he would have the front front booth and uh, at the Copacabana, and so uh, this was this was quite an experience. And uh,
0: so you were touring back in New York. You were on the road now with the Prima Band as things were taking right. off.
1: We're on the road with, we're on the road playing, uh, we got, I mean, the records took off, and it, they became uh, very big, I mean, making a lot of big uh, hits, yeah. And uh, we're working the Moulin Rouge in Hollywood, we're working the Copacabana in New York, the Black uh, Casino Philadelphia, Shaping in Chicago, and uh, so on and so forth. Everywhere we were, there was... A fellow, a, a movie actor, Peter Lawford, sure, who was a big, big fan of uh, Louis Keeley. He's part of the Rat Pack, and his his brother-in-law was Senator Kennedy.
0: Right, he well, was married to to uh, Kennedy's sister. Right. Yes. Yes. Married
1: Kennedy's sister. So uh, wherever we were, Daniel, uh, there was uh, there was Peter Lawford and and Jack uh, John Kennedy. And they'd invite us over for drinks or whatever. They were we were they were buddies. I mean, every everything was no big deal, you know. So anyhow, when Peter Lawton introduced me to Senator Kennedy, I said, Oh, Senator Kennedy, what a pleasure it is to meet you. He says, Just call me Jack. <laughs> so uh, the next thing I know is Jack is being
0: inaugurated, you know. <laughs> This is 19, uh, 1961, January 61, right?
1: And we're invited to participate, to appear on the show, of course. He loved us. And um, so we do the show, and every star in the industry was, was there, every star, movie star, recording star. I mean, I it's too numerous to mention, Cary Grant and, and uh, all the, the biggest stars, you know, Anyhow, um, we, we did the show and uh, at, at the end of the show, w- there was a party upstairs at the Sheridan Hotel, I believe, the 32nd floor. And, and, and I was playing with, with a trio that, that was actually backing uh, Ella Fitzgerald, I believe, or Sarah Vaughan, I'm not sure. It was uh, Joe Mondragon on bass and
0: uh,
1: yeah. Evie on piano. And Roy Haynes was supposed to, you know, I, I believe he he was playing drums for him, but but something happened and he uh, couldn't make it. Uh, maybe he wasn't feeling well. So I was asked to play. So here I am playing for everybody up there: Sinatra, Harry Belafonte, uh, uh, Sammy Davis, uh, uh, it's Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Sarah Vaughan, and in comes. Uh, up comes the uh, President Kennedy, or just inaugurated Kennedy, with his wife Jacqueline, and thanking
0: everybody. Yeah. When
1: when he got, and Tony Curtis is feeding me all kinds of drinks. Wow. So I was feeling no pain, man. You know?
0: <laughs> Tony <laughs> Curtis is giving you cocktails. That's great.
1: But i got to tell you, Daniel, every star in the world was there. It was just yeah. unbelievable. So, anyhow, when. Uh, President Kennedy came, he was thanking everybody, he came to thank me, you know, and I was going to say, Hey, Jack, I'm really proud of you. He told me to call him Jack, but I realized that now he's not Jack anymore. He's President yeah. John Kennedy, you know. Sure. So that, that was um, very, that was quite a story. It's quite interesting. Yeah. I, I really, we have the, the booklet of all the stars that were there. Yes. And, I didn't think too much of the booklet, so I, I, I would uh, at home. I would put like drinks on it, you know. Uh, I would use it as a, uh, a coaster, and, and then my wife, uh, Joan, said, Bobby, don't you don't you realize how important this this book is?" Is you that know?
0: is so? Did the booklet? Is that did you scan it and put it in the book? Yes, we have Excellent. it in the great, and
1: it's it's all the stars. That were at the inauguration and and President, ex President Eleanor Roosevelt, Truman and and uh, oh my God and uh, Anthony Quinn and and uh, many 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 stars of uh, uh, and and there's photos of them in and in, in uh, and online too you know you Fantastic.
0: could see yeah. yeah great yeah well I I, uh, uh, I want to move. Continue to move forward. I know the story with Prima goes on, and you, then you worked with Keely Smith, and there's so many other amazing things during that, you know, Vegas period, and stories you've told me uh, that I'm sure are all in the book. But I wanna, yeah. I wanna get on to your work at the International Hotel and a certain other famous personage that you had a chance to work with there, among many, many others.
1: It, it, excuse me, I, I just want to mention one more thing about. Yeah. One of the acts, Lena Horne, uh, Benny Carter was. Uh, uh,
0: ben, Benny the, Carter, the sax sex player and arranger.
1: And a uh, great Hollywood uh, studio musician. A wonderful orchestra. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll make this very simple. He He invited me to play with him, with his orchestra, at the Moulin Rouge in Las Vegas. And it was all black orchestra, and I was the only white guy. And um, and uh, Joe Lewis was the uh, kind of the MC, not the MC, but he was the uh, Madrid. Uh, Madrid. he was the, the manager host. Of, of the room, you mm. know.
0: Yeah, Joe yeah. Lewis, the boxer. The, the he was already retired at this point, right? Yeah, he yeah.
1: Was the host, you might say. Yeah. Anyhow, so we're playing a in, very interesting, and it's a, it's a you know, Harlem Review, you know. Uh, It was just a tremendous Harlem show with very exciting music, just wonderful. And uh, Wardell Gray was one of the saxophone players. I don't know if you remember him. Of course. Uh, Very good jazz player.
0: Absolutely.
1: And it just happened that he, uh, uh, at intermission, uh, he didn't, he left and he didn't come back and he was found murdered. Wow. It was a story in the Las Vegas newspapers. But anyhow, I just wanted to, to bring that up. The, the engagement lasted about six months, wow. and, uh, and uh, we were offered a tour of Australia. And the uh, the uh, the tour director wanted wanted him to change drummers because he wanted all black band. He didn't want a white guy in the band. Mm. So uh, Benny Carter said, "I'm I'm sorry, but." If you want us, Bobby Morris comes with us. You
0: know? Oh, right. So he stood up for you.
1: He he plays uh, he plays with that kind of intensity that
0: that we like.
1: Anyhow, so that's another story. And uh, yes,
0: there's so many stories. I mean, there's at least two, ten other questions that I want to ask you, but people are just going to have to read the book. Uh, sure. I, I, I will I will drop some some juicy details, but I I. Uh, just drop drop some names uh, in terms of the people that that you worked yeah. with, but I I want to get onto the international hotel because that's a, that's a really great story. Sure. So go yes. go ahead, yeah. How did how did that come to? Because the international oh. hotel that was the the newest oh. biggest hotel. This was in the early sixties, oh. right?
1: Well, I I Night got 60s. into the agency business, uh huh, and the, um, the booking agency, booking agency yeah. business management field you know uh, that's another story it's it, it, a lot of these things are in the book and uh, and um that that was in 1969 uh i was uh doing some business with bill miller at the international and he also had the flamingo hotel at the, the, Interna- the,
0: Inter- the international would eventually turn into the las vegas hilton correct
1: yes but uh it, when when it opened up and Bill Miller was the entertainment director of the Flamingo, and I was doing business with him, booking acts and things like that. And uh, he, uh, the International was opening up, and he uh, he said, Bobby, the International is opening, and, and how would you like to be the musical director for The Lounge? I said, well, I'd love to, Bill. That'd be wonderful. So anyhow, uh, a couple of weeks before it opened, I said, who's going to be in this main showroom that sat 2,200 people? It was Harry James. I said, wow, you couldn't get a better man than Harry James. That's wonderful. But a couple of weeks before the hotel opened, uh, Harry James remade for whatever reason. And Bill Miller called me and said, Bobby, it looks like you're going to be entertainment director for the International Hotel and the Flamingo, you know. I said, "Well, that's great." And uh, who are some of the acts opening? Uh, well, the first act we have is uh, Robert Gentry, and the second act we signed is Elvis Presley, and so on and so forth. Many, you know, Glenn Campbell, whatever, uh, just went on and on. The in biggest, a-
0: the biggest names.
1: Yeah. So I, so I, I said. Uh, he said, "It looks like you're going to have to be. You're going to be the musical director and conductor." For the orchestra for both hotels, so that's how it happened. So as as uh, uh, Barbara Streisand opened up, and I got all the music, and we had a wonderful time together. So as,
0: as the entertainment director, what was your job specifically in dealing with these? Well, <laughs> excuse me, these artists. Entertainment director. I was the musical director. The musical director.
1: The entertainment director was Bill Miller. I see. So my job was to secure all the music. And make sure that everything went well in all the hotels with the musicians, hire the musicians, uh, contract and and you know and 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 conduct when it uh, required and stuff like that. <clears throat> when when Barbara Streisand uh, opened up, I I helped with everything to all the musical stuff and and get it to musicians and sometimes I conducted for. At yeah, the rehearsal, but uh, but she had her own conductor, and I, I thought I would wind up as the conductor, but it didn't happen that way because our conductor uh, got well and came back. Mm. Well, Barbara Streisand uh, had a very good opening, and uh, Elvis Presley was opening up after that. So uh, Colonel Parker came and got me. He said, "Bobby, I I would like you to to be." Uh, Alpha's conductor, and um, I know you're musical director of the hotel, so I got permission from the hotel to uh, to be al's conductor strictly and still retain my position as musical director, so because he wanted he wanted he wanted someone that would could get close to him and would look out for him too you know
0: yeah, and I should mention this is this is Just about right after Elvis uh, finished his period of his career where he didn't perform live at all. He was just doing the movies during the 60s. And this is like right when he came back to live performing, right? So this was a really big deal. Exactly. This was a big deal.
1: Uh, This was the biggest happening in show business in the history of Las Vegas and perhaps maybe the world. So uh, anyhow, I, I spent a few months with Elvis. Putting the shows together, and uh, we spent time at his home in hollywood and uh and it was very funny yeah uh, colonel parker had me uh had me comment as a, as a, as the honored guest
0: colonel, colonel parker colonel tom parker of course was elvis's manager and really uh right hand you know partner essentially
1: right well yeah there were fifty fifty partners yeah and uh, Colonel Parker, but took care of all the business. So they they flew me to Hollywood, and uh, and they picked me up, and we wound up at uh, I believe RCA Studios, and uh, and there was a big party. There was I was kind of the honored guest, and, and all the executives of RCA and movie studios were there, and and uh, Colonel Parker said, I'd like you to sit in, on the, the front of the table. I said. Well, Colonel Parker, I I don't feel comfortable with with all these people. Can I just sit in the back of the table somewhere? You know, he says, "No, you're the honored guest. You're sitting here." So anyhow, we uh, we had a wonderful time dinner. They took me through the uh, the they showed me all the gold records and the uh, platinum albums, and then we drove up to his house in, in Hollywood, uh, Elvis's house, and we spent wow. some weeks there. Going through all the music, the gates that we we went to a gate and there was the dogs at the gate, you know, like growling. yeah, and a bunch of little girls at the gate scratching away at the car. Anyhow, we came in, the gates opened up, and and uh, I spent quite a while with him. I don't know weeks, going over all the tunes and and picking out and the tunes that he liked that. That I liked and that they, we both liked together for the opening show, uh, we decided on those. That we, when we both flipped out over over a tune, the wonder of you, heard uh, suspicious mind. Different tunes that uh, we yeah. both liked, and uh, we went, rehearsed, you know, came back, um, and uh, meanwhile, uh, Barbara was still appearing there. And it was my band, you know, backing her, and uh, and uh, Barbara came actually to rehearsal, and and she was very very nice, and I introduced her to Elvis, and uh, they became good friends, and uh, so I came back. Barbara's engagement ended, and uh, now it, it was Elvis's turn to come in. And it was the most anticipated happening, like I said, in show business. And opening night is uh, is like where actually the book starts as um walking with Elvis.
0: Yeah. And did as you was, did you end up conducting? Oh yes, I was
1: totally it conducted, did everything. Incredible. So uh, as uh, as we're walking opening night and uh Oh, uh, uh, Kirk Kikorian, the owner of the hotel asked me to be a host and to kind of greet all these stars, all the stars that were invited. Everything was comp. It was 2,200 of the biggest stars in show business. Wow. And it was my job and somebody else to greet them. And he had me go down and get a tuxedo at his, uh, tailor and, um uh, have a tuxedo and put it on his bill. Anyhow, I'm, I'm, in, I'm like greeting all these stars and all the biggest stars, man. Good evening, Mr. Grant. How are you? Welcome to the International Hotel, you know, and so on and so forth. So as the... Um, when that that ended and, and I'm walking... My, my dressing room was next to Albert's. And as we're walking towards the stage... Elvis asked me, who's out there, Bobby? I said, "Oh, Elvis, he wouldn't believe the biggest stars. I started naming him. From side. He said, well, I'm kind of nervous. I said, well, don't be nervous. i just think of everyone out there with, uh, with no clothes on. You know? Yeah. And So he he got a big laugh out of that. Sitting at a toilet seat, whatever. And uh, so as, as we're walking, Daniel, I'm thinking to myself, how does a kid from Poland this is how the book starts. Yeah, a kid from Poland couldn't speak English. I spoke many languages because everybody spoke everybody's language in Europe. But I never spoke English. How does a kid from Poland wind up being musical director? And conducted for the biggest star in the world I mean the biggest the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, happening in, in show business uh, yeah. that was the so that's the flashback now the flashback goes back to as to Poland right the book starts on walking but then there's a flashback going back to Poland
0: and that's where that's where the story and, begins and
1: that's where life starts.
0: Great. Well, we're going to have to wrap it there, Bobby. Um, I just want to thank you so much. There is, I literally have five or six other things that I really want to talk to you about, but unfortunately we just don't have the time to do it today. But I think hopefully this gives people just a taste of really an American life, you know, only in America kind of thing where the kid from Poland ends up, uh, conducting for Elvis and, uh, Hanging with the most glorious stars in the world because you know your passion for the drums. And
1: thank you, um, Daniel, thank you. I, I just want to thank a few people very quickly. Sure. First of all, I'd like to thank you too very much for uh, for being so kind to me in the past. I, I, I'd like to thank uh, Rob Wallace, the owner of Hudson Music, and the Hal Leonard uh, Company for distributing the book. I'd like to thank Jules Follett, And for having me on the sessions, and uh, and uh, Jules' father was always doing sticks and skins. She was referred to as the patron saint of drummers. Yes, everybody loved Jules, you know. And um, of course, um, I'd like to thank Steve Smith for doing such a wonderful uh, uh, introduction and uh, to the book. Yes. and I'd like to thank Don Familiaro for being so supportive. He's a wonderful person, and he was absolutely like a, a wonderful interviewer on the sessions, and we became really good friends. Anyhow, and for Joe uh, uh, Bergamini for being the editor on the book. Yeah, I'm just hoping, and the the whole entire staff of of Hudson Music and. Great. Uh, So, and especially, I want to thank you very much for this interview and for your time.
0: No problem, Bobby. It's just an absolute pleasure to to be able to talk with you. We've we've known each other now for probably at least twenty years, I would say, and uh, it's always just just so wonderful to hear you tell your stories about your incredible life. The book, of course, is called My Las Vegas with Elvis, Sinatra, Streisand, Darren, Prima, and more by Bobby Morris. And uh, Bobby, thank you for being a guest on The Daniel Glass Show.
1: Uh, 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 Daniel, and I won't forget the time when I first met you with the Royal Crown Review, if you recall. Yes. And, and you were very impressive, man. And uh, as, as a musician, as a drummer, and as a personality, and I... I, I thank you for inviting me that evening.
0: Great in luck. It was an absolute honor to have you there and it's just been an honor to, to be a friend and, uh, and keep on trucking man.
1: <laughs> thank you very much, Dan.